Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another Persuasion Labs uh, podcast episode. I'm your host, Moed Amin. Uh, and, and today we have a great conversation. Uh, so my guest is the uh, founder of Human Risk, and uh, he helps companies improve the level and quality of their employees' engagement with ethics and compliance. So essentially by understanding the actual drivers of human decision-making, you can increase the level and quality of employee engagement with ethics and compliance. So I'm really interested to talk about this with him. Um, and this is critical, especially in the, in the financial industry. And that is actually where my guest uh, has a lot of experience. So prior to founding Human Risk, he was the head of global compliance and operation, operational risk control at uh, UBS Asset Management. And he was also the chief operating officer for a subsidiary of the Bank of England. So I'm very much looking forward to this discussion as uh, behavioral science is core to any sales interaction. In fact, it is core to how you increase someone's engagement, no matter what the circumstance and scenario. So please help me welcome Christian Hunt. Uh, Christian, welcome uh, to the show. Absolute pleasure to be here, Mui. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the discussion. I think it's you know, behavioral science and, and how people make decisions. I don't think this is something that's uh, considered very often. I mean, I talk about it from a sales perspective because that's what I do every day, but I think in every engagement, and I've worked with people in R&D, engineering, the sciences, the bigger the idea or the more impact you want to have, the more people you're going to need to bring on board. And, and that requires influence. That requires you understanding how they make decisions to, to have them join you on that journey. So Maybe let's start with the big question. Let's jump right in, which is, why is it so hard for people to change? So I think if we if we sort of look at the basic way that our brain works, and, and bear in mind, this is something that has evolved over a huge amount of time. And so, so the brain we have today is designed for a very different world. It's designed for a world that doesn't have things like technology. Uh, we don't travel in the way that we can nowadays designed for a very, very simple world. And so we are programmed not necessarily to make the best possible decision, but to make the most efficient decision. And so in very simple terms, our brains, you, you, the use of the brain requires a lot of energy. They reckon it's about a third of our energy goes to the brain, which if you think about what the rest of the body is doing and the size of that organ compared to the rest of the body, that's quite a large amount to be going there. And so it's a very, it's very sort of energy intensive part of our, our, of our system. And so we try to use it as little as possible. And, and that, by the way, is the link between mental health and physical health. If you are struggling mentally, having all sorts of issues, then the body diverts energy from other parts uh, to the, the brain. Uh, and so the brain can cope and handle those situations. And hence, we shut down various other parts of our, our body. Hence, we get ill very easily. And so there is a, a clear link between those two things. But simple, simple answer is that we make decisions in an efficient way. And that means we rely on shortcuts to be able to do that. And those shortcuts are a variety of things. It's not just one isolated thing. But for example, if we have experienced something in the past, then that gives us a guide to how we can experience it in the future. And so it, take the example of crossing the road, for example. If you think about that, the amount of data you've got to compute, how quickly the vehicle's moving, what's going on around me, what a complex decision. And yet we do it fairly effortlessly. How do we do that? Well, we rely on our previous experience of crossing the road. And so we can start to do things on autopilot. 
And that's why when we develop habits, that's because our brain has just programmed to respond to particular situations in a particular way. And because we go straight for that shortcut, it's very difficult for us to circumvent that. We are programmed to be able to make decisions quickly. That gets us out of a lot of trouble. And it's not a bad thing. But sometimes if we want to disrupt that, uh, we have to, we, it's, it's requiring the brain to, to, to think a little bit harder. And so when we look at habits, that's just things that are formed over time. And they're hard to shake because they're part of the way that we operate. We just, we just like to have quick and easy decision-making. And of course, as we know, sometimes quick decision-making can be the wrong decision-making. And that's one of the challenges that we face. So interesting. So, so what, what does that mean to say complex decisions that we have to make, right? Because if, and, and totally understand exactly what you're saying there, we're optimized to be able to use as, as energy as efficiently as possible, especially if we're going to, if the body or the brain realizes it's doing things uh, regularly, it's obviously saying, well, look, this is happening often enough. How do we figure out a way to do this more efficiently? So what does that mean to kind of decisions that we have to make then, right? How does that impact, say, the switch from decisions that we're used to making and we probably do on a daily basis to say bigger decisions where there's a bit of novelty injected into that process. So, so what's interesting is we will, we will try and find the quickest way to get to that decision. And if you think about something like branded products, right, you go into the supermarket, one of the reasons brands work is that we have a, a pattern recognition. And we know that, for example, if we say Kellogg's for cereal, we know that that is very likely to be a reliable product, right? Or McDonald's is probably an even better example, right? We're not gonna get the best meal of our lives, but we're unlikely to get poisoned by going to McDonald's. And so what we can do with brands is another example of where we would take a shortcut. We have a rough idea of the sort of quality and the price point of what we're likely to be buying. And so that's an example where we might be buying something in an unfamiliar category, but we'll try and find something that'll peg it. So if somebody that we trust brings something out, McDonald's extends its range into some other form of food, we'll have a rough idea of, of, of where that might stand. And so what we're looking for is some form of shortcut that we can use to make that decision more quickly. Now, if we haven't got a past experience of, of doing something ourselves, we'll find the closest thing we can to it. Uh, so maybe we'll rely on experience that isn't necessarily valuable, but it somehow our brain convinces itself that it is. What's the closest thing that we've had? So when we travel abroad, we are sometimes, we, we expect things to be the way they are at home. And of course, that's one of the joys of travel is seeing the different countries react in, in different ways. If we haven't got something we can rely on from our own experience, then we can rely on what other people do. So maybe we watch what other people are doing. That's why things like reviews, TripAdvisor is a good example. I mean, we're literally taking advice from strangers to help us make decisions. And we'll do the same thing with things like restaurants. Um, if you think about nightclubs as a really good example, why do they artificially create a queue outside? Well, the answer is they want to send you a signal that this is a popular place. People will stand in line to wait to get in there. Because it's a nightclub, they can't show you inside. There are no windows, it's dark. So how do I show you it's popular inside? I make it look popular outside. And we are very often influenced by others. Think about what happens in a riot. For example, people do things they probably wouldn't do on their own, but they get carried away with a mass of other people. Uh, you know, crowds in stadia is another example where we, we kind of, the dynamic changes, we're influenced by other people. And of course, our friends influences our family, people that are closest to us, our coworkers. And so if we haven't got any personal reference point to go to, we will look for other people to guide that. And of course, that can be incredibly sensible. Think about a scenario where lots of people are running away from something. There's a strong likelihood that there's a good reason why they're running away. And so we're probably best advised not to hang around and find out what's going on, but to run with the crowd. 
There are, of course, other situations where if we're influenced by people, it can have a really bad outcome. So if we fall out or fall in with the wrong crowd, um, you know, the advice your parents always give you about who you hang out, that can obviously influence us in a bad way. And so what we're looking for really is reference points that will help make that decision that little bit easier. And whether we pick a good reference point or a bad reference point is, of course, down to circumstance. And, and the, other, the other final factor that's worth thinking about is the environment that we're in. We will take lots of cues from our environment, noticing what's going on. If it's an unfamiliar environment, we might be picking cues from other people. If it's a more familiar environment, we may rely on our experience uh, in, in the closest thing that we, that we have to it. But context and environment also influence us. So those are some of the drivers that we use. And, and of course, if we are in unfamiliar territory, then we might have to rely on something that is less reliable than if we are in familiar territory. So that makes sense. And, and the, the initial thought in my mind while you were describing that is that's, that sounds like it's, there's a lot of exposure to inaccuracies there. If we're relying on other people's perceptions, and if we're relying even on our own perception of that experience, because back then we were viewing the world and our place within it in a very different way. So when we move that to say the business environment, for example, what does that mean in terms of, you know, for example, if, you know, like I said, I work with a lot of salespeople. If we have to persuade someone to take a different approach to something or, or, or to think about a different solution or, or a different way of solving an issue, you're saying that we should try and connect it with something that they've experienced in the past. Is that one of the principles or is there more to it? The decisions that people make, I think the, the first thing to say is that we, we like to believe that we're incredibly sophisticated, right? And that we, we you know, we, we, we and analyze situations and we're smart people. And generally speaking, right, the fact that the species is still around illustrates that our brains, you know, there's some benefit to the process that our brains use. Our ancestors survived for us to be around because of the systems that we that we use today. So I don't want to pay, you know, I think I think what I'm what I'm painting here is to say we have an incredibly powerful computer going on inside our heads. Um, but the algorithm, if you like, that's been programmed in there is programmed to make quick, efficient decisions and to avoid thinking too hard about things. And so what that means is if we have, if the reference point is uh, relevant, then we can make very, very good decisions very, very quickly. And that can save us, uh, you know, from, uh, I mean, literally can keep, save our lives. Uh, it can, but equally, we may find ourselves picking the wrong reference point. If you look at things like advertising, couple, um, there are a variety of techniques that are used to try and get us to buy products. Now that might be uh, use of celebrities. So there's an example of someone influencing us. I mean, the fact that a celebrity who we've never met drives a particular car or uses a particular perfume should be utterly irrelevant. I mean, their lifestyle is very different to us, and yet we are influenced by it. There's a reason that they use um, celebrities and adverts because it because it works right it's effective we recognize it we associate with them and maybe we want some of the glamour so there's a shortcut that our brains are using to say hey if it's good enough for George Clooney or Jennifer Lopez or whoever um, maybe that's good enough for me maybe I aspire to be like them and so so that you know that can can lead you to buy things that might not be suitable for you on the other hand it may lead to a perfect decision um, think about things like jingles that's about creating an association a repetition a familiarity with something you know we like easy to remember patterns things that sound or look attractive draw draw our attention 
And so there are lots of cues that can be used to drive a particular association and to get us to, 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 to think of a product in a particular way. And so you're absolutely right. One of the ways that you could do that is to make people feel comfortable with something they have not tried is to associate it and make it feel as close to something they have tried before, because then it feels lower risk. And so that's why, for example, brands exist because you, you, know, you, you can go out there and if you buy a Sony or an LG TV, for example, it might not be the best thing out there, but it's unlikely to be crap, right? There's a brand standing behind it and you've got a recognition point. And so that's an association that's the, that allows you to, to sort of make a fairly safe choice. Well, not the best, but definitely not the worst. And so I think the art of persuading people to do something is really to recognize, well, what are the factors that are likely to drive them? And probably more importantly, what are the impediments to them buying it? So what might they be worried about? Uh, they might not want to look stupid. They don't want to waste money on something silly. So knowing that lots of other people have bought something makes you feel good. Why do consultants list all of their clients? Well, the answer, the reason they list those clients is you can sit there and go, oh, well, they use that. They've done that. That must, that must feel, you know, that must, be, that must be high quality. I can trust that because these other people have done the due diligence for me. We might not be thinking, well, is my, is, you know, is my company actually directly comparable with that other company? But we like the idea that somebody else has done some due diligence on it. You know, reputation is a very powerful thing. If, if other people have used your product and, and rave about it, hence reviews on websites, then that's a pretty good sign. You say, well, these other people like that. that that's, you know, that's powerful. Social media, great example of how social interactions, how what other people think can really influence us, even if those people are ignorant. You know, conspiracy theories can spread like wildfire because it comes through a source that we know and trust. So what I, what I think is really important for people to understand is that when we make decisions, we would love to think of ourselves as being incredibly rational, incredibly sensible. In fact, we are very emotional. We respond to lots of different cues. And so recognizing what those cues might be and how we can you know, press, press the right sort of associations for people is the key, I think, to connecting with them. And thinking not just around positive, but also what are the negatives that I can remove from people? So why might they not want to do this? Well, maybe the price is bothering them, or maybe it's something that's very different to anything anyone else has. And therefore, is that potentially embarrassing for them? Uh, so how do we remove that embarrassment? Reassure them, other people have bought this. Look at how much cheaper it is relative to our competitor product. Uh, or look at these are all the extra features that you're getting for this price. And so the price point you might have in your head is wrong. Because here's, here's, let me explain it and make it easy for you. And making it cognitively easy, sort of cognitive fluidity, is what will really help people make a decision. Because ultimately, what we all want to do is not look stupid. We want to make good decisions and we want to feel comfortable having done that. And so if we can find the reference points that make that feel good, then people are more likely to be able to, to, to justify the, the purchase. There was a lot in there, Christian, that I, that I loved. You know, um, you know, cognitive fluidity, making it as easy as possible for them. Uh, I, I really want to talk about the risk elements because that's an element that is so underappreciated when it comes to influence or persuasion or sales. Um, and, 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 you know, but before I come to that, I just want to ask a quick question related to, you know, this uh, cognitive fluidity and making things easy as possible. Um, in our modern world where there's just such an abundance of information out there, I mean, obviously the difficulty now is not that we have information, it's assessing the quality and the validity of that mm -hmm. information do you think that we as human beings 
have moved even further down that kind of cognitive, cognitive fluidity route that kind of trying to make quick decisions. And we go to what is familiar, even though that familiar, if we really analyze it, um, may not be the most reliable information. Do you think with all that overwhelming amount of information, we've actually re not, not regressed, but we've kind of focused more in on what's familiar in order to make a decision? Or do you think we've become more informed? <laughs> So I, I think the challenge that we've got is if you go, you go back to what were our brains designed for, they were designed for a world. Uh, and there's a Harvard uh, professor called Dan Gilbert, who does a, a brilliant TED talk on this. So I'm, I'm shamelessly stealing from him. But he says, look, our brains were designed for a world that's very different from our own, where everybody looked the same, everybody's very familiar, same environments. And the key priorities were to procreate, to feed ourselves and just to survive, get through the day. And so the, the number of decisions that people in that sort of environment would have to make would be very limited because the likelihood of something new or different appearing was, was very, very small. Uh, whereas now we are making, they reckon, something like 30,000 decisions a day. Now, if that sounds like a lot, because it is a big number, it's everything from, you know, which socks should I wear? Uh, do I want a cup of coffee? Do I want a cup of tea? Shall I get up? Shall I not get up? Uh, shall I answer the phone? Uh, what am I going to have for lunch? Um, uh, am I going to buy this particular product? So we, we are asking our brains to make a heck of a lot of decisions. And, and of course, the data that's out there for us to be able to do that, as you rightly point out, through the internet, but also if you just wander around, we are constantly being bombarded with messages and stimuli trying to grab our attention. And so it is much, much harder for brains that try to be used as little as possible to handle that situation. Hence, we will, you know, information overload is a thing. And we, we, we know that. And so there have been some wonderful experiments conducted uh, using um, jam. And what's really interesting is if you go, if you offer people too many, they struggle if you offer them too many varieties of something. So they didn't, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was sort of, you know, people like to think we want lots of choice. That feels good. But if they conduct an experiment where I think sort of the people found it easy to select when there were uh, something like three, four, five, six, seven jams, but you give them 30 jams to pick from. And it starts to get a bit more complicated because you're like, oh, I don't know. Do I prefer, you know, uh, what, what, what's, what's my view between raspberry and blackberry? And the more obscure fruits kind of skew the, skew the mix a little bit. And so when we're faced with a massive amount of decisions, we're going to have to shut some, some sources of information out because we cannot possibly constantly process all of the things that are there. And so that's why when we look at things that are effective at grabbing our attention, it's because they make it super simple for us. So social media has a large number of cues involved in it that work well with us. So for example, you know, if you look at things like TikTok, short videos, right? You're not committing to 10 minutes, maybe it's a minute, maybe 30 seconds, you know, those things, very short amounts. So it's not a big risk for me to spend the time watching it. I've got the social connection. So other people have been watching this. The algorithm picks things it knows I've seen before and might like to see similar things in future. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of clever curation there that plays with our brains in a way that says, oh, this is a fun place to hang out. This feels, and hence we spend lots of hours doom scrolling through those sorts of environments. And so in some respects, if we can get the curation correct, we can make better decisions. So, uh, you know, for example, reading reviews, consumer magazines, finding people you can trust to advise you on a particular purchase 
And maybe you go to, you know, maybe you go to a retailer who you perceive to genuinely care about your interest, who wants your repeat custom, who can recommend you the best possible product from a selection of them. And so that might be a good example of, of going to, or you get a friend who knows something about the subject to help you do that. Um, if we don't have those sort of, you know, charitable, positive curations, we are susceptible to being influenced by other forms of curation. That might be advertisements. You know, we'll buy products we're familiar with. How do they get us familiar with the products? Well, they'll show us it on TV. And, you know, it comes up in the middle of a sports game you're watching or something, uh, something else that you're happy and familiar with. You recognize it. You go to the supermarket. I don't know which one of these I want. Oh, there's a name I recognize. I'll buy it. Uh, with with no bearing on the quality of the product. And so this, this idea of experience, you know, we, we're finding the shortcut. So what we have to do in the 21st century, if we want to make smart decisions or we want other people to make smart decisions, is to make sure that the curation of data that is helping make that decision is, is sensible and intelligent. And, and that's the challenge that we face now with the internet. It is very possible to be incredibly ill-informed about things and feel very, very confident. And we've seen this throughout COVID, where we've had self-appointed, you know, experts on vaccines and, um, you know, respiratory diseases, things people knew nothing about before. Suddenly, they've 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 done their quote-unquote research online, and so that's the challenge that we face as a society. Uh, but also, if we're trying to persuade other people to to, to think in a particular way, is that there are competing um, attention grabbers out there. So that's that's the challenge that we face. And so all of us have to be very wary of if, if it's us making the decision is what's influenced my decision and to think about is that appropriate or not. Now, the challenge is very often we don't necessarily have the wherewithal to question that. We think about the data that we've got. We don't think about the data that we haven't got. And that can apply to purchasing decisions, it can apply to business meetings, can apply to you know, uh, our, how we perceive other people. Uh, we know how we feel. We don't necessarily know what's driving their decision making. And so that's the challenge that we've got. So on the one hand, I think we've got an opportunity to be really smart about things. On the other hand, we have even more opportunities to make incredibly bad decisions. And it's all down to the data that goes into our brains. Because if you think about it, we can't reprogram, unlike a computer system where we can, we can, up, we can uplift the, the, we put a new processor in it, put more memory in it. We can't do anything about, at the moment, about what's going on in our heads. So the only thing we can play with is the data set that goes into our human algorithm. And it's the data, garbage in, garbage out, as they say in, in, in IT. So if we're putting in the wrong data into our brains, then we're going to get the wrong decision. Putting good data in, we are more likely to make good decisions. So if you're, if you're someone that's seeking to influence or persuade someone, can you share some principles or simple ways where, you know, how we can share information that is sensible, that is seen as good data, that is seen as quality data, that someone will therefore trust in an ethical way, of course, right? But but yeah. oftentimes, oftentimes it's not because we have bad intentions. I mean, sales profession aside, there's still a lot of, uh, uh, let's say, less than desirable qualities uh, out there, unfortunately. But, you know, a lot of people do genuinely want to help others. And the problem isn't their lack of that. They're not ingenuine. Um, the problem is that they just don't structure that information in the right way. So are there some quick ideas that you can share around how to kind of share information so that people can make sense of that and, and give it to them in a good quality structured way that helps them make a good decision. Yeah, so I think I think that the, the key bit is to recognize what is the person you're speaking to, what's their level of understanding likely to be. And so if you right. think about something like a mortgage, 
you in your lifetime, uh, you know, we, we, we might take out a mortgage four or five times. You know, even the sort of the most prolific property purchase is not going to do more than sort of 20 or 30 probably. But, but banks are selling mortgages every single day. So there's an information asymmetry. So the first thing I would say is if you really want to treat your customers ethically, is try and understand what their level of understanding is. And therefore, if, they, if making a decision requires you to have a level of understanding, try and give them that level of understanding. Explain it to them in plain, simple English. Don't use acronyms. You know, we see a lot of products out there where car manufacturers are great, or hi-fi manufacturers are also great at this stuff, right? Let's add in some extra terms, extra features with little letters and abbreviations that do things. Do people really understand it? Probably not. Uh, it sounds good, but is it is it actually useful? So we need to get the consumer up to a point, and I say consumer, I mean the, you know, the, the purchaser, up to a point where they uh, are in a stronger position to be able to think for themselves. And that might require a little bit of education on the on the, on on what the, the the subject in hand, particularly if it's not something that they have purchased before or purchased on an infrequent basis, or there have been big changes. So educating the consumer uh, is in incredibly powerful. I think the next thing is clearly they don't want to be embarrassed, and so highlighting uh, the disadvantages uh, also can win trust with people because if you, you expect the salesperson to just tell you all the positives. Actually, if somebody presents it and says, look, this thing is really good for this, not so good for that, and you're thinking about how sharing negative factors with them, that can build trust because you're sitting there genuinely, it looks, sounds like you're trying to help them make the best possible decision that they can. So pointing out negatives is a good thing. Pointing out who else has bought this, who, who what sort of person buys this, giving people a sense that it's suitable for them. Um, financial services has a, a concept that the regulators are pushing now called suitability which is all about saying, have you considered financial services providers, whether this product is genuinely suitable for that client, right? You might be able to persuade them to buy it because you, uh, you make it sound attractive, but actually, is it really suitable? And that's the test, the standard that people are being held to now. And so I would say is thinking about it, is this really suitable for them? And if you don't think it's suitable, um, you know, don't, don't, don't sell it to them. I think the, you know, I, I, I would look at reverse the kinds of techniques that you see going on in sort of tourist trap shops. So let's pick a really extreme example, right? If we go to the souks of Morocco, uh, the sort of place that tourists go to, they probably go there once in their lifetime, uh, they're never going to go back. Uh, they don't really know the price of things. There's a strong likelihood of being ripped off. And, and there are all sorts of sales techniques like putting people under pressure, um, telling them all sorts of technical detail about, you know, you think about carpets, uh, what's gone into it, the amount of time, effort, whole load of spiel that's not really relevant to does the person like this, is it right for their home? It just tries to sound, justify the price. Then there's a funny uh, lack of transparency around pricing, uh, all sorts of other funny deals, things get chucked in. All of those tactics clearly work, but they work as a one-off purchase, right? If you lived there, you wouldn't be subject to that sort of thing because you'd know better, but you also, you'd realize you've been ripped off and you wouldn't go back. So any business that's in a sort of short-termist thing, so tourist trap type businesses work, particularly using bad techniques, do the opposite. Uh, show more transparency to people. Don't encourage them to buy things that they don't want. Um, share with them the downsides of the particular product you're buying. And then, and then you can start to win trust with people. And, and what's interesting is that might not, you know, that might cost you a sale. But what's fascinating is we rely heavily on trust. And if, if somebody has actually told us not to buy something, uh, they've developed a level of honesty and trust with us that means we're more likely when we come to buy that again to go back to them. 
And so I think if you want to build a sustainable sales business, it's about being much more transparent than might naturally feel right. That might cost you in the short term, but in the longer term, you'll build a stronger relationship with people. And if you, I think it's really easy to think about in your own context, right? When buy, think about you buying something from someone else, those same dynamics apply. So what would you like to hear? Which retailers uh, do you trust and why do you trust them and replicate what they do? That's, that's the ethical way forward. Clearly, as I've highlighted with those tourist traps, there are a lot of techniques that are used in sales that can be very effective, but that uh, comes back to you won't build a long-term relationship with people if you're ripping them off. And so depending on the nature of your business, um, you know, that can, you can get short-term profits, but long-term uh, not be so profitable because people won't come back, particularly in the modern world where people talk. And so when you think about things like TripAdvisor, um, that's a natural human dynamic. We all talk about it. So if I've had a bad experience, I'm very likely to want to share that with other people to warn them um, that I've, you know, I've had a bad experience not to buy from that particular company. And so in this hyper digitized world where people are regularly communicating, we've got to think about our reputations much more than we did before. Yeah, that, that, there was a lot of great things in there. And I'm so glad you talked about trust because I myself for the last 15 years have been, um, you know, interviewing, I think we're at 421 uh, business to business buyers across 10 different industries, nine different functional groups. So it's not just all in IT, you know, it's IT, HR, R&D, sales, marketing, the whole thing. And it all came down to trust, actually. So it's really interesting that you that you spent quite a bit of time talking about that. But what I also found interesting was the first one that you said, which is understand the level of knowledge that the person you're seeking to influence has. Because if they're very far away from understanding what it is you're talking about, then you're going to make that, that conversation a lot harder for them. They're going to have to do a lot more work, which, as we've talked about earlier, the brain is always trying to find more efficient ways to do things and make decisions. So. And, and, and look, that plays into design as well, right? Because right. so if you think about products that we like to buy um, or, or like to regularly use or are happy with, those tend to be products that are just easy to use. So things that don't come with an instruction manual is a really good example of something that's been designed with the end user in mind. And what's fascinating about many sales processes is that often the sales process has to compensate for the inadequacies of the underlying product, right? So here's something that's really complicated and you need to meet a salesperson to, because the salesperson is going to have to explain it to you. And, and that I think is, is illustrative of a, of a flaw because actually if, the sale, if it's highly complicated, then you know, sometimes things have to be complicated. Very often they are you know, engineers like design or coders like designing things that are complex because they can. And it's left to the poor salesperson to bridge that particular gap. The closer the design of the product is to the end user, in other words, usability. So think of the iPhone as a really good example. That's been designed with the end user in mind. They, they don't have to, it's not too hard, actually, for the staff in the Apple store to sell the product because the product is selling itself. But I think very often sales get stuck in this horrible space of here's, a, here's something that's not very clear at all, and I've got to bridge that gap. Um, and, and I think that's that's you know that's where it gets quite difficult. But if you recognise that that's what you're there to do, then at least you can start on the right foot and try and achieve that. Yeah, that that's really interesting. So there's there's a point there around sales being that champion of the buyer's perspective and feeding that back to product and product development as well, so that we are creating something that is actually easy for the buyer to understand and therefore want to work with, want to use. So I think that's really interesting. Before I go into risk, I, and I promised I was going to ask about risk because I think this is something mm. that's really important for sales but just before i get to that you triggered something that i wanted to ask a question about which is we make thirty thousand decisions a day 
So is there some truth to the stories that I'm hearing around people like Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, et cetera, where they would basically try to wear the same clothes every day in order to reduce the number of decisions that they have to make theoretically, because they want to have as much energy as possible for the big decisions that they have to do. So yep. is there some truth to that? Yes. Uh, there's, a, there's a Vanity Fair interview, and I'll, I'll, I can send you the link, with Barack Obama, where he talks about exactly that. And if you look, he, he got in trouble for wearing a tan-coloured suit once. But generally speaking, he had two colours of suit that he wore, and it was exactly about that. Makes it super stress-free. And if that sounds silly, I've actually tried it. Right. So um, it, it, right. if you if you can just remove that stress, particularly if it's something that, that suits you or fits well or you feel comfortable in. Right. You've just removed the whole load of hassle because, you know, it's going to look OK. You know what it's going to feel like to wear. It, it feels like a second skin because you're used to it. And you, you're absolutely right. You've, you've removed that whole indecision piece and, and genuinely removing steps from decision making hugely helps. So, yes, that is absolutely. I mean, I'm sure there's a little bit of sort of you know, with Steve Jobs, it became part of his brand. And I'm sure the same is true with Zuckerberg. But there definitely is something in that. And I'd highly recommend people trying it. So I, I now do find myself buying things in duplicate. So that I, if I like it, I'm going to get two or three of them so that I can make life a little bit easier for myself. That is absolutely correct. And it does work. Uh, that's so interesting. And I think that's really powerful for, you know, anyone in the persuasion or influence related persuasion uh, professions that they, they're going to have to think about, well, how do I make it as easy as possible for our buyer? And there's some research out there, I think done by Gartner, you know, that talks about making sense of sense making. So making sense of the information out there to help buyers get to that. So, so that's really interesting. So, you know, I promised again, I'm going to, we're going to talk about risk. So let's talk about that now, because I think this is something, you know, unfortunately, and I can only speak from the sales profession, but actually, to be honest, I do see this in other professions. You know, we're trained that if you're going to influence someone, focus on the positives, focus on the benefits, focus on the value proposition or business proposition. And, and as we know, and as we, you've just talked about, and something that I, I talk about all the time with salespeople is, you know, you might have the greatest value proposition, but the decision is ultimately emotional or a large part of it is emotional. And often the time, this is what I tell them is, can I trust my reputation in this person's hands? Because I'm going to make a decision that's going to have consequences. And if they go wrong, people are going to look to me to say, why did I make a wrong decision? And you talked about embarrassment earlier. So I'm very glad that you said that because that is ultimately whatever, even if you're a founder of a company, it's still your own money, your own reputation amongst other people, et cetera as well as if you're a C-level executive. So how, how should salespeople or anyone who's seeking to persuade someone, how should they think about risk when it comes to human decision-making? You talked about it, some of that earlier where you said, you know, here are the things we're great at, here are the things that we're not so great at. So there's an element there of risk, but what are some of the other ways that we should be approaching risk and communicating that with a potential buyer or someone that we're looking to influence? So, so if you think about every single decision you make comes with a degree of risk, right? So uh, I pick, a, I pick a, a, a meal in a restaurant. Uh, there's a risk, there's a, a risk of food poisoning. There's a risk I won't like it. There's a risk of allergies. There's a risk I've ordered too much. There's a, there's a risk of me spilling food on myself. You know, all, and, and those range from the sensible, obvious risk to, to slightly silly things. But they're, they're all sort of in our minds. So... What we, what we were trying to do whenever we make decisions is to minimize the risk involved in that, in that decision. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, and, and this isn't to be confused with, you know, risk, risk taking is absolutely necessary. We couldn't survive if we weren't taking risks. Uh, and we like, and obviously we like the thrill of, of what feels like risk taking. So roller coaster is a good example. Why do people do adrenaline sports? Well, we love that sense of risk, but we don't like it all the time. And we like to try and minimize it. And, and so what, we, what we're trying to do when we make a decision is to minimize. Now, I know that there is, it's very unlikely for me sitting in this room that the ceiling is going to collapse on me. It's very unlikely that if I get on a plane, that the plane is going to fall out of the sky, right? And we know that because societally, somebody's taken care of that particular thing. Now, that's re reassuring for us. That's why we, you know, we will get on a plane with an airline we've heard of. And we might get on a plane with an airline we haven't heard of if we think the industry is well regulated. But we wouldn't, you know, if our neighbor, I've just put this little thing together, come for a flight, you'd be a bit nervous unless they were an aeronautical engineer and had experience in that, in that field. So what we're doing is we're looking when we make decisions to minimize the amount of risk. And an embarrassment is just one of those risks. Looking silly is not something any of us ever enjoys. So I think the answer to uh, salespeople when you're connecting with a buyer is to think about, well, what risks does this pose to them, right? Are they going to be embarrassed by having been ripped off? Um, you, if you've ever bought a product and then you see it in the sales a, a couple of weeks later and it's significantly cheaper, that is really irritating. Uh, and potentially embarrassing if you've talked to other people about it because you because you look like a fool. You know, you could have bought it more cheaply, but you didn't. Um, you know, is the product going to keep breaking down? If I'm buying a car for my family, is it? it am I going to find myself stranded on the side of the motorway because it's got reliability issues? That's an embarrassing factor. If um, I discover that I could have bought something that's much better suited to my needs, then that's potentially an embarrassment factor. And it, it, it's obviously it's more embarrassing if other people are involved, but we feel stupid in ourselves. So recognizing the reasons that people buying your product could be embarrassed and being able to remove those. You know, so for example, uh, some shops offer a price guarantee that if you, might, if, if you buy from us and you could have bought it more cheaply somewhere else, we'll refund you the difference. Very simple way of removing embarrassment from the buyer, because then you know there's no risk of that particular thing happening. Um, if you offer a warranty, that means there's an opportunity for you. If it does go wrong, you've got you're covered in that particular thing. You're not going to have to spend lots of money on getting it fixed. Uh, you know, a returns period where if you don't like something, a clothes, good example, it might look good in the shop, but is it going to look awful when I take it home? Well, if I offer you the opportunity to bring it back or send it back if you've bought it online, that removes the potential embarrassment for you to be wasting money on a, on a particular thing. So as we look at these things, in any given purchase, there will be risks associated with it. And so what you need to try and do is to mitigate those risks by either offering compensations to people in other words, in other words, yes, that I can't do anything about that risk, right? I, if I sell you a product, I can't guarantee out that there, there won't be a place where you could have bought it more cheaply, but I can take that risk away by offering to match that price if that ever comes good. And so you've taken that risk, effectively taken that risk off the table. If you can't take it off the table completely, maybe you can mitigate that risk, make people feel better about it. And we want to feel good about the things that we do. And so giving people every opportunity to feel good about it, remove the potential downsides, makes a purchase much more likely because it feels like a safer option. So uh, what, about, what about, for example, let's say someone has been convinced to buy a software or platform in a company or to do a new thing in a company, right? Ethics and compliance. You know, there's often, you know, the way we conduct ourselves that requires change from what we used to do before. So let's say that the powers that be have agreed that that needs to be done. Now they need to convince the people in their teams to do that. So if a salesperson sold the software, for example, that person that's bought the software now has to convince their users in their business mm -hmm. 
to use it in order for that value to be returned. If they don't, then actually it's not in the salesperson's interest. Same with ethics and compliance. So how do you then think about, are there any examples you can share of how you can mitigate risk in getting your colleagues to come along that journey and to take that step towards the new area? Yeah, so, so the natural tendency many organizations have is to sort of impose things on people. So uh, you know, we have decided that the company is going to do this. Is that the and, things? And, is that the things you talk about? Where um, you, I, I notice one of your gripes is that people are not doing the things that they should be doing. Is that does that come under that category? Um, yeah. So so I de I define human risk as the risk as is the name of my company, but also the thing I help people manage the risk of people doing things they shouldn't or not doing things they should, um, and recognize there's both sides to that, right? So so you can right. you can. Um, you, you, you can cause problems by breaking rules or equally you can cause problems by not doing something that's absolutely critical. And so when I, when I look at it, the challenges that, that human beings pose to organizations is that they are, you know, we're sentient beings who make our own minds up about things. And so when I, when I look at what can go wrong in companies, there's always a human component involved, either causing the problem in the first place or making it worse. And so if, if you're uh, an owner of a company or the CEO or you know, manager in, in, in an organization, you, you've hired people to do things. And so there'll be certain things you need them to do and certain other things that you don't want them to do. And there'll be qualitative elements to those particular components. And so as we look at getting people to do things or not do things, depending on what the outcome we're looking for is, what we've got to do is recognize what is likely to be driving their decision making. And so the traditional method for solving that problem is to say, well, uh, we employ you, uh, we pay you, we can tell you what to do. And that is, of course, legally correct, right? Your employment contract gives you a ton of rights. But if you think about it, any time that you go to a contract and you try and enforce a contract, something's gone wrong because you're, you're then in a sort of litigious mindset. And so if you want people to behave in a particular way, we need to work with the grain of human decision-making, not against it. Now, there are going to be some things where people just have to be told, and you do exercise those rights. If you think about restaurants, for example, you don't want someone coming into work and going, oh, I, you know, I've read the health and safety requirements. I don't like the hand-washing routine that, that they've developed here, so I'm going to make my own up, or I'm just going to throw some nuts into this particular dish. I know people have allergies, but I think it's creatively important for me to be able to do that. Or in a nuclear power station, wonder what happens if I press this button or mess around with the contents reactor, right? There are certain situations in which it is black and white and people just need to be told there are very strict rules that need to be enforced. And that, that's fine in certain contexts. But there's plenty of other contexts where actually you need them to work with you and there's a qualitative element to being compliant, if you like. So ethics would be a good example, right? If I want my people in my company to be ethical, I can't just say be ethical or indeed codify, if I write a list of codes out, say these are the, this is what being ethical means, because chances are I'll miss something on that list. And if you are giving people detailed instructions, if you miss something off, actually that can be a cue for them to not break the rules, but to, 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 to assume that well, if it's not in the rules, it means it's okay. And that of course, isn't necessarily true when you've got a, a subject like ethics, which has lots of gray areas and where something in one context might be appropriate, but not in another. And so as we look at that particular challenge, it's a case of understanding what's going to drive their decision making. So back to your example of we are selling someone a piece of software and that's going to need to be used across the organization. One of the effective ways to sell that to the person, to the buyer, is to help them be able to make that case in turn. So a good example would be, you know, not just dumping some software on people, but running training. 
And so we'll sell you software and we'll also give you some free training for your staff so that they can get comfortable with using this particular software. And what that's doing is it's helping them to do their own sales pitch because the purchaser may not be the end user. And so how do we get to that end user who's going to be the determinant as to whether or not this thing succeeds and therefore whether the purchaser has done a good job or not. And so clearly involving them in the, in the purchasing process would be smart, right? If you're selling to someone, you know, a little bit like if you are gonna to sell toys, ultimately the arbiter of whether a toy is good or not is the kid that gets it, not the parent that has bought it. And so if you're a toy manufacturer, how do you wanna do that? Well, you wanna give kids lots of opportunities to play with your toys. That's why you advertise in children's television periods, not in adults, because the ultimate decision maker is, is or, you know, the ultimate, the person who will decide whether this is a good or bad idea is the kid, not the, the, the parent. So you've got to think about what's the sales pitch that that person is going to need to do. And so what are the, what are the pinch points, the challenges? What are the things that might irritate or impede the end user from using your particular product? So you can persuade the salesperson or the, you know, maybe the IT security. You can persuade the IT security. This security system is amazing. Right? It's going to mitigate all the risks we have. Yeah, but if the user interface is cruddy and it requires the end user to do things they're never going to do, you're going to fail. And so looking the look through and saying, how can I help them with that sales pitch? And maybe they're not making that sales pitch. Maybe they're not involving their end users and they're just going ahead. You could maybe say to them, maybe we should bring those people in so they can see the benefits of this as well. And so it's really thinking about, there's almost an onward sale that's also part of that process in the example you gave. Yeah, that, that, that's hugely interesting and valuable. Yeah, I, I think this is going to be eye-opening for a lot of people, uh, particularly the element of, I don't want to say simplicity, but the fact that actually we're looking for simplicity in our world, right? Our brain's always looking for a simple way to do something. And the more complex we make it, because we think that complexity justifies my salary or justifies the price of something, actually that's actually detracting people away from making decision with you. So I think that that is a really important thing for people listening and viewing this to learn. And we have um, to, there's, there's one caveat to that though, I would say, right? Which is, right. Which is sometimes you need to have complex, sometimes dumbing yeah. it down too far yeah. Uh, if I'm thinking of drugs, for example, there may yeah. be situations in which not intentional complexity, uh, you know, but but there is there is a degree of detail required. So it, 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 it's a general rule to say, keep it as simple as you can and make it easy to understand. But there may be contexts in which that's not appropriate. And I do, I do want to caveat that and say we shouldn't be trying to dumb down things where there is a sophisticated buyer, where there's a level of complexity, where the detail is actually relevant. But in most cases, right. it is not. And I think one can recognize those. That, you know, it's, it's obvious in certain situations where that does make sense. In other situations, uh, it's probably not necessary. And I think very often we are on the side of making things more complicated than it needs to be. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, that makes complete sense because that goes back to one of the things you said earlier, which is what is the level of knowledge that the person you're speaking with has about what you're talking about? So uh, if you're selling a technology product, you're selling it to uh, you know, a senior stakeholder that may not be technologically savvy, but is business savvy, there's a different level of communication compared to when you're speaking to the technology person in their company, they have a higher level of knowledge of this. They're, they're expecting to see a specific threshold when it comes to the, not, not necessarily complexity, but the detail around that product that you're selling. So that makes complete sense. Um, so we're coming up close to time and a couple of questions I really want to ask that I ask all my, all my mm -hmm. um, guests that come on this show. Firstly, which three books or experts would you recommend that 
uh, our listeners or viewers should buy or follow? Okay. So fabulous uh, new book that's just out by Zoe Chance, who is an assistant professor at Yale that talks about influence. And it, it talks not, not just in the sense of social media influencing, but how we can all influence each other. Very, very good basic guides to behavioral science in there and some techniques that I thoroughly recommend. Uh, that book is just out. Uh, I would also recommend following a chap called Rory Sutherland, who works for Ogilvy, the advertising agency. Uh, he's written a fabulous book called Alchemy, taking uh, counterintuitive thinking to a very different level and really helping us to think differently about problem solving and uh, just, just sort of challenges that we're facing in the 21st century. So Rory's my second recommendation. And the third one, um, I'll go with an absolute classic from behavioral science that I think is worth looking at, a chap called Dan Ariely, who's written a number of books, um, one of which is called Predictably Irrational, which looks at the fact that we, on the one hand, we like to think of ourselves as rational people, but actually in many cases we are irrational, but there's a predictability to that. So those three, so Zoe Chance, Rory Sutherland, Dan Ariely. Yeah, thank you for that. And as always, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes for everyone to to access uh, information about those books and get them if they want. If you were to think about your journey on, you know, understanding biobehavior, what are the things that you wished you would have learned or appreciated more in your 20s when you were younger? That, you know, for anyone listening, you would say, look, you've got to really take note of this because this will help you in the long run. So what were the things you wish you could have understood or appreciated earlier? So so I, I, I think one of the things that is underrated is curiosity and passion and they're slightly different things but they all play into what 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 makes me tick and i was very very curious as a kid and i have returned to being incredibly curious in what i do now Uh, but there was a period of time where i i sort of did the traditional thing and did something sensible and i qualified as an accountant uh, purely because I'd done a literature-based degree, and literature-based degrees are all about people, because uh, we write books about people, not inanimate objects. Uh, and so I've always been fascinated by what makes people tick. And then I went through this period of I need to do something sensible. And I wish that I had been much more following of my curiosity and passion. Now, there's a danger that you end up like one of those deluded people on those talent shows that have no talent, that think they do. But I think one needs, someone needs to calibrate a little bit and recognize that there may not immediately be a career path or options available for, for one in that space. But you'll always be find, able to find something that, that makes you drive. And so I think there's a lot of traditional logic around, well, you need to do a sensible career. You need to do this. You need to do that. That might have applied historically. But in the 21st century, there's plenty of room for people to create new businesses, do new things, explore new travel, uh, you know, whether that's physically or virtually and to test out new experiences and to to kind of break with conventional wisdom. And I wish I'd done that much earlier in my career. All of that said, I think where I've ended up now wouldn't have happened without the the, the sort of serious bits, if you like, of my career. So curiosity and passion, I think, are massively underrated in some cases. Conventional wisdom would say you, you need to do sensible things. I think sometimes silly things can lead to really interesting discoveries and a lot of personal fulfillment. Yeah, I love that last bit. Silly things can lead to a lot of uh, personal discovery and fulfillment. I love that. Um, So uh, Christian, how can our viewers and listeners learn more about you and get in touch? 
Um, so firstly, always happy to connect with people on LinkedIn, as long as you tell me how you found me, because um, uh, otherwise I'll be, be curious um, and assume you're trying to sell me something. Uh, they can find out more about my business at human-risk.com. Uh, and then I also have a podcast, which you'll find at humanriskpodcast.com, that interviews everybody ranging from academics. I've had a sexologist on there, comedians, all sorts of different people that can help us think differently about the risks posed by human decision-making and what we can do to mitigate it. Yeah, great. And as always, we'll we'll put a link and we'll put all those links in the show notes so that people can easily find you uh so christian this has been a, a really informative very interesting um uh, session and uh i'm in no doubt that our viewers and listeners have learned a ton from this so you know thank you for for agreeing to come onto the show and for sharing your knowledge and expertise uh, and freely and in such a generous way with everyone my absolute pleasure thank you so much for having me Great. And if any of the listeners or viewers, if you'd like to learn more about those principles, or if you'd like to learn more about that in a sales setting, then uh, do please reach out to me. Again, I'll put the uh, contact details in the show notes there. But for now, from the Persuasion Lab, this is Moe Damin signing off. Thank you.